entering the Freedom Hut. A story about mail-in ballot fraud that you need to know. An assessment on foreign threats to the 2020 election delayed by the intelligence community. Hunter Biden asked the Chinese oligarch for $10 million. And will there be COVID mutations? Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American this is the Buck Sexton Show. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. You think I can speak for three hours without a phone call. Try doing that sometime. It is Buck Sexton. Now. A lot of the laws that have to be confirmed and I think reaffirmed are state laws, so it's not in our purview, but the state laws are set and then we have federal elections. So what we've heard about what happened in Wisconsin, what happened in Nevada, I think is absolutely true and we have to prevent it from happening again. I think state legislators legislatures will need to reaffirm that election law can only be chained by a state legislature. So I think there's a lot of work to be done. While we will not dictate it to the states, I think we should have here going into the next year, hearing from state legislatures and what they're going to do to make sure election law is upheld, not changed by people who are not legislators. And uh, we do have an interest in that. I don't want it to be federalized. Many on the other side of the aisle would just soon federalize it and mail everybody a ballot and we'll have this universal corruption throughout the land. But what I think we need to do is keep it at the state level. But we can't just say it didn't happen. We can't just say, oh, 4,000 people voted in Nevada that were not non-citizens, and we're just going to ignore it. We're going to sweep it under the rug. So the courts have decided the facts. The courts have not decided the facts. The courts never looked at the facts. The courts don't like elections, and so they stayed out of it by finding an excuse, standing or otherwise, to stay out of it. But the fraud happened. The election in many ways was stolen, and the only way it'll be fixed is by, in the future, reinforcing the laws. The fraud happened. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. I I wanted to do a deep dive with you today into what we know so far and and make sure that we separate out the difference between getting justice in the process and having the process uh, continue to hold and go on as it stands. It's not the same thing. A process does not guarantee a good result. Our electoral process not only does not guarantee a good result from the perspective of candidates, but also from the perspective of whether or not it was a free and fair election. That's what we are seeing. There are not the safeguards that you would think are in place because so many of them were removed by Democrats intentionally. They pushed aside So many things that would be there specifically. And they do this all the time. They don't like voter ID. They don't they always fight any effort to make it harder to commit fraud. And so what Rand Paul is saying here, and he said this during the hearing, I read the entire transcript of this Senate hearing yesterday. And what Rand Paul is saying is absolutely true. Uh, There was fraud. And no one can prove that there was not the fraud that is even specifically being alleged. The courts are just saying, look, not not our deal, not our situation. We're not getting involved. They have decided to just leave this to the process. They're not going to change it. And that's what I've been telling. you. I've seen this coming all along. But that's a far cry from saying that there was nothing that actually was fraudulent about this election, which I know you're going to be told. And they're going to tell you that a lot. 
And the people who spent four years lying about Russia collusion as a means of undermining our democracy, undermining the 2016 election. Now they're going to pretend like they've been honest characters in this whole drama. And they weren't. They were frauds. They were abject frauds. But that's something that we have to continue to push to get the answers about what are the specifics of the fraud. I read through, you know, Ron Johnson, uh, Senator Johnson had some pretty fiery moments during that hearing. I looked at all the different questions and you had Ken Starr there. You had uh, you had Krebs, the fired election security guy. His his writ, his mandate really was just about foreign interference in the election. And he's saying that it was great in terms of preventing that. But he has no answers about did people double vote in Nevada? Did people who were illegal aliens vote in Nevada? Did people who uh, voted too late in Pennsylvania, should their votes be discounted? There are, there are all these very legitimate questions. But I mean, let's just start with this. How many dead people voted in the election? If someone tells you the answer is zero, they're lying to you. How many people double voted in the election? If someone says there's there were zero, they're lying to you. How many illegal aliens voted in the election? And so on and so forth. It's not that this stuff has been disproven. It's that we don't have a platform. We don't have an avenue for getting this to a place in the process where anything can be done about it because judges will not toss out large quantities of ballots. Democrats flooded the zone. They made it so that this election was a free for all. They knew what they were doing when they did it. And we're dealing with the result. That's all I've been telling you. I'm as certain as you are that there was fraud. And I think there was substantial enough fraud that it did cost Trump a few of these states. But we've been unable to prove it in the process. And that's not going to change because the judges won't take it up. They say there's no standing. They say they, you know, there's some procedural reason why they can't do this. And so what I've been trying to tell you is to prepare yourself for that reality. I'm not saying don't push, don't bring the legal challenges. I've supported them every step of the way. But I have seen what is going on here. I understand how bureaucracies function and how they can choose to not function when they want to, when it's in their interest. And that's why don't ever let them tell you because they will. There was no fraud. That's gaslighting. That's a lie. And don't ever let them tell you that mail in balloting is not somehow an enormous open invitation for more fraud than would otherwise be in an election. I want to tell you a little story now, one that some of you may know. I'll take you back to the northeastern United States, traveling from New York to Baltimore in 1864. President Abraham Lincoln is running for reelection. It's toward the end of the vicious, bloody, very high casualty civil war. And there's a fellow named Orville Wood who is tasked with making sure that this Newly instituted system in a number of states like New York of mail in ballots for soldiers from the front lines would be executed properly. Now, may not surprise you to know that when all was said and done, over 70 percent of soldiers were voted or voting for Abraham Lincoln and his National Union Party. And that there was plenty of reason to understand why, given all that they had sacrificed, all they had fought for, that Lincoln was going to be the recipient of those votes in advance of the actual counting. So what did the opposition do here? Well, 
you had this guy, Orville Wood, who was just a merchant from northeastern New York State. He was a supporter of Abraham Lincoln, and he was supposed to visit the troops from his hometown to see how things were going with this mail-in voting. And everyone knew that the, the result of this 1864 election was going to have a profound impact on the outcome, the final outcome of the war. Lincoln wanted to continue until absolute victory. But the anti-war Democrats, yes, that's right, the Democrats. I know, isn't it amazing? You look back in our history, so much villainy falls at the feet of the Democrat Party. But the anti-war Democrats, they were called copperheads at the time. They were looking for some kind of a way to get a negotiated peace with the Confederacy. And they also, of course, opposed the abolition movement in its entirety. So this is another way of saying they're the bad guys in this tale. So the troops from New York were able to vote from the front lines, mail in. And sure enough, when this this fellow, Mr. Orville Wood, gets to Fort McHenry in Baltimore, he's visiting the 91st New York Regiment. There's an army captain who says something about, quote, checker playing with soldiers ballots, checker playing with soldiers ballots. What's going on? What what is that all about? And then Wood goes to visit wounded men at Newton University Hospital. And then he hears more about this. And he keeps hearing soldiers say that something funky is going on with these mail in ballots. And sure enough, he went all the way to the office of Moses Ferry in Baltimore. Ferry was chosen by New York Governor Horatio Seymour to oversee this process. Again, for enlisted soldiers on the front line fighting a a terrible war and their voice needed to be heard for the Republic, right? Their voice was an essential part of this electoral process. And Wood enters this guy Ferry's office And he pretends that he's a George McClellan supporter. And sure enough, he is brought in on the scheme. There's a guy sitting across the room signing ballots from names that had been brought from Wood's hometown. In fact, Wood asked them if he could deliver these fraudulent ballots. That's right. They had a fake ballot operation going on, just signing the names of of soldiers on the front lines who were not actually at all involved in casting their ballots. And so he got involved in this process, this Mr. Wood. And it was during this it was during this process that he found out that there are about 20 co-conspirators, co-conspirators who are working not just in Baltimore, but also in D.C., all delivering votes for McClellan. And sure enough, he found out that they were passing Names of active enlistment, active enlisted men, the wounded, dead soldiers, officers who never existed, just straight up old school ballot fraud, all based in mail in ballots. So they were just filling this out and and going to these uh, going to these obvious lengths. If you were around them, because it was already rumored what was going on here, that they were trying to make sure that they delivered a state uh, they, they delivered the election for Lincoln's opponent. And so they also were people who opposed the abolition movement. This was critical. If Lincoln had lost reelection, it would have changed the trajectory of the country. So you have these men who are involved in this mail in balloting scheme for Democrats. 
And they're sending back crates of fake ballots to be counted in this election. And Wood called the authorities, went to call on them. Obviously, there were no phones. And sure enough, on the morning of October 27th, 1864, two weeks before the election, there was a military commission held and the men confessed to the scheme and they were initially sentenced to life in prison. This was taken very seriously to be involved in ballot fraud in a time of war, life in prison. And Lincoln, before he was shot, was a supporter of that sentence to give you an idea of how much he thought this was a grave offense. So the people who tell you that there's no election fraud are either historical ignoramuses or they're liars. This is just one of many instances of election fraud that have happened in this country. But this one specifically used mail-in ballots. This one looked at a process that really hasn't changed all that much. And the moment that you allow people to do this, and you separate the chain of custody, you you disaggregate the showing up in front of people with observers. People recognize that it's a lot easier to cheat. And so what do the Democrats do in 1864 to try to end the abolition movement and defeat Abraham Lincoln toward the end of the Civil War? They cheated with mail in ballots. Yeah, but don't worry. The Democrats of today are here to tell you that they would never do such a thing and that there's no such thing as cheating in an election. They are liars. They are frauds. And we will not let this pass. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I I think it would be healthy for the country, Lou, if we had a debate on January 6th about all this, because the mainstream press certainly hasn't covered these hearings in these states where there's been such concerns about how the election was 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 done. So let's let this let's let it play out and let's have a real debate on January 6th. I think that'd be when you have Lou, when you have over a third of the electorate think this election was stolen. That is not a healthy situation for your country. And yet the left says, oh, you got to stop now. You can't have a debate. You can't keep the president can't pursue all his legal options. We shouldn't even have a debate on the floor on January 6th. That is just wrong. It is wrong. And it also is about showing that we haven't forgotten what happened for the last four years. It's about reminding the Democrats that the fraud that they perpetrated against the president with the Russia collusion hoax will not go unpunished. It really is stunning. It's amazing. Now they pretend like we don't remember anything. We didn't suffer through all the nonsense, all the idiocy of the Russia hoax of Russia gate. They talk about the need to protect our sacred democracy. Uh, They called the president a traitor. They had a special counsel looking at him and his family. They lied about FBI investigations. They used the surveillance apparatus of the intelligence community against a presidential campaign. This is the kind of thing that does happen in pseudo-democratic dictatorships all over the world. That's what happens. The security apparatus is used to crush the opposition. And Trump wasn't just the opposition to Hillary Clinton. He was the opposition to the political elites and the establishment. So they circled the wagons. They did everything they could to destroy him, and they still weren't successful the first time around. So what did they do the second time around? Come up with a way to change all the rules of the game, which they did. That is a fact in an election year in ways that they knew would benefit them. Why would it benefit them? Why is it all of a sudden just always assumed that when there are fewer rules for an election, it benefits Democrats? 
because Republicans don't like convenience. Republican voters can't use the mail. No, I think we all understand that Democrats do fraud when it comes to elections. This is their province. This is their expertise. And as long as there's no voter ID, as long as because who, who, who shouldn't be voting? Convicted felons, for example, who do they vote for if they can? Democrats, 10 to 1. Illegal aliens shouldn't be voting. Who do they vote for? Democrats. So if you eliminate all the safeguards, if you get rid of all the guardrails, what do you have? A free for all that's going to, at the end of the day, benefit the benefit the Democratic Party. And that's what happened. So make no mistake about it. I'm not telling you Joe Biden won the election fair and square. I'm telling you that they managed to abuse and manipulate the process in such a way that we cannot use the process to get a just result. It's not the same thing as saying, yeah, well, you know, Joe did a great job. Of course not. But it's a recognition of where we are. If you don't have judges who are willing to take this up, if you don't have the courage at that level of this process, then it's never going to it's never going to work. And we've seen nothing that would lead any of us to believe that that's going to change anytime soon. So that's why I'm trying to say we still need to fight for the answers here. I read through that transcript yesterday. There's so many questions. Did or did not. 3000 or so people who uh, are illegal aliens, did they vote in Nevada or did they not? We should be able to get a definitive answer on that. The courts won't take it up, though, and the people looking into it don't have law enforcement authority. They don't have subpoena power. Did or did not. uh, Did they or didn't they have. People who were dead voting. My friend Sean Parnell says that when he had in in Pennsylvania, they did a canvas of nursing homes. They found a few thousand ballots that all looked like they had the same signature, the same handwriting. Is is that is that a lie? Uh, He wouldn't lie. So what's going on? Ah, that's right. The process does not have fast enough answers and remedies for this. And that is what we are continuing to deal with. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. How far integrated into the Ukrainian economy did uh, Hunter Biden get when he was on the board of Burisma? Somebody needs to look at his time on the board of Burisma. Somebody needs to look at his business dealings regarding China to see if any crimes were committed. But mainly, I think, that to see what kind of conflicts, if any, the Biden administration may have. I'm absolutely calling on a special counsel to look at all things Hunter Biden to see if he presents a conflict with the Biden administration regarding his business dealings in Ukraine, which is overrun with Russian agents and any activity he with the Chinese government. A special counsel to look into Hunter Biden. I think it's a good idea. I also wish that Attorney General Barr hadn't been unfairly maligned by so many on the right and, and, and attacked by the president when he shouldn't. He shouldn't have been. I'm just going to tell you, it was not it was not a fair assessment that was going on here. The president's very upset about the election. I understand that. I share that that sentiment. But it's not Bill Barr's fault. It's just not. And you would want a competent attorney general in the role right now who understands what the deep state and the Democrats have tried to do in the past to be in a position to appoint a, a, a special counsel. But 
I don't think it's going to happen now. It should, though. Remember this. Everything that was done to Republicans by the Democrats as part of hashtag resist. We should revisit upon them now. We could call it uh, Operation Reciprocity, like the clear and present danger CIA operation from the movie Clear and Present Danger, which, as you know, I like to reference on this show because I've seen it a million times. Operation Reciprocity. We do to them what they do to us. Isn't that necessary? Isn't that central to our system? If we have equal justice under the law, doesn't that equal justice have to mean that Democrats are subject to the same kinds of investigations and the same aggressive checks and balances that Republicans were during the four years of Trump's uh, Trump's term? I, I certainly think so. And in fact, if you look at why a special counsel exists, the Hunter Biden case in many ways, even more so than Russia collusion, although there are Obama administration figures that will be in a Biden White House. Uh, but it's really for exactly this kind of a circumstance where you have the son of a president under federal investigation. That is why you'd have a special counsel to insulate that uh, that legal effort from the pressures that come directly from the commander in chief. So there's a great it is a great example of when you should have a special counsel. And I call for one right away. I'm glad to see that there are others who are now saying, yeah, special counsel. Nice. Some of us think faster than others on this stuff. Do I think one will happen, though? No. Now, why is that? There is still a kind of virtue signaling that exists on the right. There's still a a desire to seem like at, at, at the most opportune moment, some people who are Republicans, who are in prominent positions, they, they want to be the ones who seem like they're above it all. This is kind of the Romney approach, although Romney also is just very bitter about Trump. And we, we know that, you know, he's actually an egomaniac and that Trump uh, offends him. And so that's why he voted to have the president of the United States removed from office in the way that he did. But there are Republicans out there who want to say, no, no, we don't do that. We don't play rough like that. And that's still very widespread. And some of them are prominent senators. Some of them are political consultants that get to go on Fox News every five minutes. They, they still think that we we aspire to make the Democrats at the end of the day to make the Democrats like us in the way that we conduct ourselves in these political battles. Democrats don't give don't give a, a squat about what any of you or what I think about their conduct during Trump. That's been very clear. They don't apologize. They don't ever say that they went a little overboard. No, they they only are upset about one thing, and that is that they were not ultimately successful in destroying the Trump presidency. And that is it. That is it. But they are very happy that they feel they were able to stack the deck for this election in a way that benefited them and that made the fraud so easy and so uh made it so easy and so amorphous at the same time, right? It can happen in so many different states, a few thousand here, a few thousand there. How do you track all this stuff down that it was bound to be a an enormous benefit for them? And it was, and it was. But should we have a special counsel to look into Hunter Biden? Yes, we absolutely should. I mean, this guy was saying back for his make-believe, what, Sino Hawk Holdings, Everything that Tony Bobolinsky said on on Tucker Carlson's show in that long interview that I'm sure many of you saw, everything that was said was true. That Bobolinsky said uh, that guy clearly just spoke up because he's like, this is appalling. 
the Bidens are corrupt. And we're seeing more and more that that China is our primary national security and economic concern. No question. I mean, it's it's by far by miles and miles. And the Democrats spent four years with this Russia hysteria that came at a cost, not only a cost to the administration, to the Trump administration, but also the cost of making sure that we didn't as a people, as a country, pay nearly enough attention to the threat from the Chinese Communist Party. And we are paying for that. That was a mistake. That was an error. And that's why when Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, these individuals uh, are, are going to be able to now direct foreign policy of the United States. I mean, Hunter, not officially, but, you know, he can always talk to his dad. And that was the whole hook. That was the point. Hunter was selling access to his powerful and connected dad. That's why he's asking a Chinese oligarch, according to emails that have been released, uh, for, for $10 million. I can tell you, $10 million is a lot of money. $10 million is something that, you know, you usually got to do a considerable amount to get that kind of cash. You know, this isn't $50,000 under a table for some local city councilman or something. This is this is real money. And we're supposed to pretend that this didn't mean anything. Why would we believe that the Democrats were so willing to corrupt the Justice Department to have FBI agents lie, to have senior DOJ officials cover up, to have James Comey go forward and bail out Hillary Clinton by saying that no honest prosecutor would bring charges against her for clear violations of federal statute? Why would we think that now... Oh, when a Biden presidency uh, has the problem of a son who not only was it's not just that Hunter Biden was doing corrupt stuff. It's that he was leveraging his dad, his relationship with his dad and bringing his dad into it. And his dad is looking like he's going to be president, friends. He is now officially the president elect. That is a fact. I know I don't like saying it out loud, but it is a fact. And you have Hunter Biden knowing this whole time that he'll get a pass. This is the great double standard. Democrats are so emotionalized about their politics. They, they view it as so intrinsic to their very being. They're so certain that they're good people, that they're the better people out there, that if they have to break rules, if they have to dispense with principles at the first moment of any any problem for them, they, it's all it's all for the greater good. You see, it's for the collective good. And they're just simply fine with that. They have no problem with that. I do. And I think that we need to understand that it's going to get ugly now. And we have to make it ugly because otherwise there's no way that they will ever think twice about doing what they did to President Trump. We have not achieved justice for what Democrats did the first four years, the last four years of Donald Trump's presidency, not even close. And unless we understand what this game is really all about now and how they're playing it and meet them on the battlefield, the way they meet us, we're just going to keep losing. We're going to keep losing. I say no. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Did China seek to influence this last election? It's a very important, a very straightforward question. Did the CCP, did our chief global rival and and likely future all out enemy, the Chinese Communist Party, 
uh, did, did they actually have a hand in what happened? Now, I remember when Russia buying a, a pittance worth of Facebook ads was considered an urgent national security crisis and that that meant that we couldn't really trust the results of the 2016 election because a couple of troll farmers in Russia put some stuff up about hashtag lock her up on Facebook. Remember that? That was Russia interfered in the election. Russia interfered. That's what they told us. Well, did China interfere in this election? And what does that mean about what our response should be? If China did interfere, is Joe Biden even the legitimate victor, even based on the process as riddled with errors and fraud as we've already seen as it was? Right? Do we add this on top of all of that? We're going to treat this guy like it's legitimate, even though we have even more problems with the integrity and authenticity of this of this election process. So the intelligence community's classified assessment on foreign threats to the election this year was supposed to be released tomorrow. And now they're saying it is delayed. Why would it be delayed? Well, let's get into this for a moment. Quote this afternoon, the D- this was from yesterday. The DNI was notified by career intelligence officials that the intelligence community will not meet the December 18th guideline set by executive order and Congress to submit the IC's classified assessment on foreign threats to the 2020 election, according to Amanda Schock, assistant DNI for strategic communications. The IC has received relevant reporting since the election, and a number of agencies have not finished coordinating on the product. The DNI is committed to providing this report to our customers expeditiously. Now, I'm somebody who was involved in these kind of assessments at the CIA. I used to write assessments like this, parts of them about things going on in the Middle East. So I know this process very well. And uh, you know what the problem is here? I can tell you, and I don't have any specific knowledge of this process of the classified and what's being said behind closed doors, but I know how the bureaucracy works. And I know how the various parties involved here fight over their, they call it their equities, right? Their, Their interests in this. And here's what's going on. There are people who are very pro-Biden, who are jubilant. And most of the senior ranks of the, especially we talk about the analytic cadre, which I was a part of, which is, you know, the nerd society in the intelligence community. Most of the analytic cadre are Democrats. I'd say 70 to 70 to 80 percent are Democrats. Uh, That's just a guess. But again, I spent a lot of time around these people. I know. And most of them are overjoyed that they think Joe Biden has this thing in the bag. It's all over. He's he's the next president of the United States. And they're going to do everything they can to try and protect this guy. They're going to do everything, everything they can to make sure that there's not even a dissenting opinion in this intelligence community assessment that could be used because it will make its way to the press. And there's also... There are un- there's the unclassified version of this, which is what everyone's talking about now. It's supposed to be uh, they're supposed to be released. Right. So. There's a classified assessment of it, and then usually they'll do a, an unclassified executive summary that'll make its way out, though that takes longer. That takes more time. Um, but why would they be so worried about this? Shouldn't they just the, the, the usual standard for the I.C.? Uh, The usual standard when I was in was that if there were really strong dissenting opinions, you include them in the reports that you have a full spectrum analysis of what's going on. 
And when this doesn't happen, the intelligence community often has horrifically flawed analysis that's completely wrong. So the issue here is most likely that uh, they don't want there are people who probably think that they're up for maybe a big promotion or a much better deal for themselves in a Biden administration. And they don't want to be a part of anything. And also for ideological reasons, they want to make sure that there's nothing that could harm good old blue collar Joe. Because even if China didn't influence the election in a way that was determinative, even if China wasn't it didn't do enough. What we, we remember from Russia collusion that no sane, intelligent human being thought that some Russian Facebook ads changed the course of the 2016 election. But there was some Russian influence operation online. Therefore, we can't ever know. Sorry, Trump's invalid. That was their take. And some of the smarter people who are Democrat deep staters inside the IC, they're seeing this and they realize, whoa, we got a problem here. Because if it comes out, if it makes its way to Congress and then there is an unclassified version of this that gets that gets released, they declassify portions of the executive summary and release it. And it turns out that China tried to help Joe Biden after his son was asking a Chinese oligarch, which is basically a Chinese Communist Party businessman. You can't be a wealthy Chinese businessman without the Chinese Communist Party calling the shots for you, asking for millions and millions of dollars. That guy. Yeah. Not a surprise that they that Joe Biden would be the choice of the CCP, is it? But they don't want people to know they don't want people to be able to draw upon this and to hold the democrats to hold joe biden to the same standard that donald trump was held to in fact this would be even a very different standard because at least this is real at least this is a country that has the kind of influence to project itself onto our politics and change an election china targeted sanctions against states with the whole trade war and agricultural issues meant to hurt Republicans. China actively works to the benefit of the DNC. We know this. They would much rather have complacent DNC elite establishment figures who all want to be on the board of Facebook or they all want to be getting some consulting agreement from Google. Those are the people that they want in government doing their bidding, right? Because they are going to be able to say, hey, do you want access to our Chinese market? Do you want to get rich or you want to be principled? That's the that's what the Chinese Communist Party presents to Democrats and to some Republicans. And they fall for it, too. Do you want to get rich or do you want to be principled and stand up for America? Donald Trump said, you know what? Go blank yourself, China. We're going to do this the right way. You think that a Biden administration is going to do that? You think you think that's going to happen? Of course not. This is an enormous win. I'll tell you right now. I mean, I think I think China's financial prospects for the next few years look very strong because Biden's a wimp and he's going to get rolled by them. And it's in his interest to do so. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about the threat from China with someone who knows it well. He's a Mandarin speaker. He's a former naval intelligence officer. He is a host at One American News and a buddy of mine, Jack Posobiec, a.k.a. Poso in the mix here. Jack, great to have you. 
my Best thoughts. My thoughts exactly. Great to be here today. Yeah. So tell me this. Uh, what do you think is the slowdown for this? I mean, this would be a big thing. This would be a bombshell if we have an intelligence community assessment that says that China worked in this election to influence on behalf of Joe Biden. We got Joe Biden's son in emails asking a Chinese Communist Party connected businessman for, you know, a wire of ten million dollars. And I'm pretty sure the rules that have been established, Jack, are if if there is foreign interference, we need a special counsel and maybe the election is just not legitimate. That's what happened for four years. Yeah, it's really amazing what's going on. So to give people the backstory on this, the DNI report is due to be on the president's desk by tomorrow, by Friday the 18th. This is set by executive order. You know, this isn't one of those reports. Oh, we'll get it done when we get it done. No, 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 no. This is set by executive order for the uh, for the intel agencies writ large, which comes under that sort of capstone of the DNI as an intelligence community assessment to be on his desk 45 days after the election. And by the way, this was something that when the president signed it, uh, this had bipartisan support. Obviously, we want to know if any foreign government is interfering in our elections. This was certainly shoved down the throats of every conservative, every Trump supporter for four years straight regarding Russia. But now suddenly we've got this guy, Chris Krebs, who's going out and testifying and saying, oh, no, there was no uh, there was no interference whatsoever. Most secure, you know, freest and fairest we've ever had. Right. Well, now it turns out and I was getting this information, reporting it out yesterday afternoon, uh, pretty early before the DNI made their announcement that there is a huge dust up going on. It's really kind of turned into a massive battle at the highest levels of our IC, literally the highest levels, the DNI over whether or not to include assessments regarding Chinese interference. And what's really interesting, and, and I know you know how to read between the tea leaves on official statements from the IC as well, that they actually mentioned in the DNI's report. Now, what I had said in my reporting for One American News was that there was uh, continuing intelligence, continuing raw intelligence coming in regarding Chinese operations. What the DNI said was there was new relevant information that was received after the election. Now, reading the tea leaves a little bit, the intel community doesn't usually find out about stuff like that, that big by the, uh, you know, long after the fact, 45 days after the fact. But what most likely is going on here is that one of the 16 agencies, you probably know which one that was, had the information and didn't share it with the others. And now they're upset about it. And so you're getting into this sort of, um, I'm not sure what, if I can say that on, on, on air, uh, sort of um, a match of sorts regarding who, can, you know, who gets to actually cover this situation, who gets to work that problem set, work these targets. And now DNI Ratcliffe is saying, look, you guys have an issue. Analytic trade craft, which we all, we all learn, right? Analytic trade craft would say that when there's disputing assessments, you include them both. Yes. And you include the reasons for why and you, and you set that out. That's basic. 101 level stuff but for some reason one agency is saying no you shouldn't include any assessment even though there is raw intelligence yeah and jack as as, as you i'm sure recall it's hard for outsiders to understand you from the uh, you, you come at this from the naval intelligence side i come in from the cia perspective how intense and how how much these bureaucratic turf turf battles can get deeply personal oh, yeah. i've seen adults in conference rooms with uh you know draped with american flags and all kinds of uh 
uh, read a regalia of the of the federal government where people were cursing and screaming in each other's faces over over things like this, yep. over what's included in an analytic assessment. So for those on the in the outside world, this becomes incredibly heated and contentious. So that's one part of it. And that's it's, it's what you alluded to before. It's who gets control of this issue going forward and the resources and the White House attention exactly. that would come with that. But I also have to think, and we're speaking to uh, Jack Posobiec, former naval, former naval intelligence officer and, and One America News host. I, I also think that uh, when we look at this, there is probably some element, and it might even be the majority of this, where there are some people who are very pro Biden, who are senior up in the ranks at I'm I don't know which agency I could as you bet, I could take a couple of guesses who think okay we got an incoming Biden administration. We got to protect as much as we can this team of of adults that's coming in from the back, uh, the backlash and and the blowback of any China. You know, that becomes a big problem for the Democrats. Any China issue of, in, of influence the election makes Joe Biden an even bigger target for the stuff that we're already seeing with Hunter Biden and everything else. So I think they may be covering for him. And that's exactly right. And we saw this as well when intelligence became politicized during an election in 2012 when the Benghazi situation happened. And you saw the intel agencies for at least for a time, right, when it mattered, they were doing everything they could to defend Barack Obama to make sure that their assessments were in line with, uh, oh, this cover story about a YouTube video rather than a terrorist attack until after the election when the truth just exploded all over the place and everybody knew what happened. And we found out, of course, that they all knew at the time what happened because it was obvious, right? Um, that's a similar situation to what you're seeing now is because they're also looking at making sure that they're in good standing with it, with what they perceive to be the incoming administration. They want to make sure that they maintain that relationship. And there are also people there who are looking at it from a perspective of keep in mind. And a lot of people have to know this, that uh, there's different stripes of and different you know sort of factions within the IC. But you do have your cold warrior types who for them Russia will always be the great bear. They are always America's uh, eternal enemy and everything you know that the IC does has to be geared towards Russia. But then you also have a younger type and uh, I think of these as like the Pete Buttigieg types uh, of, IC, of, of IC officers. He, he himself was a, uh, a reserve intelligence officer that they get their mindset from CNN, Washington Post, New York Times, and then they go into the IC. And so that that mindset, that framing of everything that's going on in the world starts with some pretty some pretty far left, right? They used to be kind of centrist, but now they're a little bit more far left in terms of their perspective, in terms of their coverage. So they already have an outsized view of Russia being a threat versus China, who we know, of course, has way more money, has way more resources. They have the Wu Mao 50 cent army of Chinese bots that was influencing US uh, social media networks in the run up to COVID-19 and after the COVID-19 pandemic hit our shores, right? We know that China was using these operations. So it strikes me as ridiculous that the Intel community wouldn't have found any information about Chinese influence operations because we already know that they're here. We're speaking to Jack Posobiec, host at One America News, former Naval Intelligence Officer at uh, Jack. What do you think the Chinese Communist Party is going to try to do in a Biden administration, meaning what are their goals for the next four years? We could talk about their goals the next 50 years if we really want to be terrified. But let's talk about the next four years. 
Well, so they're going back to the same mode that America was in in terms of our relationship vis-a-vis China under in the waning days of the Obama administration. There was this this phrase they used, and it always shocked me, and I think it shocked a lot of people uh, out in the world when they heard it, but not so much in, here in Washington, D.C. They talked about the managed decline of America. America is a declining power. America is on the road to... Uh, a saw, give America a soft landing. These are the types of phrases you would hear. And so the question that I always asked is, was when President Obama or at times you would hear Joe Biden talk about this when he himself went to China. Remember, he was Obama's personal envoy to China going around with uh, Xi Jinping, going to Sichuan University, bringing his son on Air Force Two. These things all happened regardless of uh, whether Twitter will let you talk about them or not. And so they want America to be in that declining status, moving towards where a place, quite frankly, where the UK was uh, after World War II, when America was then on the rise. They want China to be in the driver's seat as the rise to a global, not maybe not a hegemony, but a global superpower in terms of where the United States used to be, right? And I always try to explain this to people. It's not necessarily that China hates the United States. They don't have disdain for us. They actually, in in many cases, have a lot of respect for America's past achievements. That being said, um, they want to be where we are. A Chinese guy told me once, I want to be in a position where I see Chinese families adopting American babies and not the other way around. And that, you know, and, and he didn't mean it in a negative way. He didn't mean it as an insult. He just meant that's where he wanted. Right. They want to be the, They want to be the global hegemon. There's no question about that. They're working right. toward that all the time. Jack, I, I also want to ask you about the, the Hunter Biden situation specifically, because you and I were corresponding early on about this to make sure that, you know, we were all lined up with what was really happening. And, you know, you verified important things for me to make sure that we knew that that story was was quite real when it was when it was breaking right before the election. Uh, do you think it's fair to say that Hunter Biden is compromised? By the Chinese Communist Party. I don't, you know, when you're in the IC, you're taught to look for flags, compromise flags. You're taught to look for these these indicators, right? And you're supposed to stack them. We're all given this training about, uh, oh, this person has four indicators. This fi- person has five indicators. I've actually worked on, which obviously can't get into, but I've actually worked on some of those situations. I have some experience with some of those situations uh, from a, from an operational perspective on, on how the CCP works. Um, you know, so when I saw the Eric Swalwell situation, I said, well, yeah, this is textbook. It didn't even shock me at all in the least. I, I would be surprised if they weren't doing that, right? I was, be, I was only surprised that it leaked uh, publicly the way it did. Uh, Hunter Biden is quite possibly the most compromised person that we've ever had being this close to the White House. And I'm not saying that based on, you know, my, my opinion, right? I'm saying that based on the emails, the reports, the money, his ties to these private equity firms that he still has stakes in, right? They say, well, he's off the board. They say, okay, you took his title off, but that doesn't mean he doesn't still have a stake in the firm, right? That's what matters, the money. Um, and I, just from a perspective, you know, we know that China uses what they call yellow operations. So yellow involves anything that's uh, you know, intimate. Um, Hunter Biden's a guy where, and I remember I've had access to this hard drive he filmed all sorts of things and just strange videos, even when it was just himself, uh, very strange videos that this guy was filming. And to think that the Chinese don't have other 
videos of him as well as these videos that we've seen is you know it'd be ridiculous to think that they don't have that kind of stuff so yeah you do have a situation here where very clearly this is someone who's compromised financially and compromised personally and so with joe biden it's really strange that he's get, taken this absolutist perspective right he told us at the debate, remember, go back to what he said to the American people. My son has not taken a cent from China. These, there were no transactions. It was a smear. And now it's, well, these transactions were looked to and nobody said there was anything problem, any problem with it. And then the latest is that Hunter Biden's come out and said, my father had no information about these. Right. It's just, it's just a right? cascade so, of changing lies, like the Hillary email situation, by the way. Right. Right. It's crazy. That's exactly right. And so you need to be upfront with the American people. It's as simple as that. Be upfront with the American people. And if there's something that happened that was wrong, be a man, be an adult. And I say this to Joe Biden, this is your son, right? This is your son. It's time to step up and be the role model that quite frankly, it looks like he never had. Jack Posobiec, One America News Network. Jack, great to have you, my friend. Take care. Thanks so much, bud. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. It's going to be tight in Georgia, everybody. You need to keep hearing it. I I know we've got stations down in Georgia, so there are people who are registered in the state of Georgia who are listening to this show right now, and this is going to be a very close election for both of those Senate runoff seats. Right now, the Democrats are playing a pretty clear game, or maybe in a sense, we know what their game is, but they're making it muddled, right? They're trying to avoid us understanding what's really happening here and and here's the situation the democrats are hoping that we're going to become a little bit complacent overconfident that people who are understandably furious about the presidential election in georgia aren't going to turn out that would be disastrous not only is there the senate uh, balance which is the biggest single issue in play here but these these candidates, I mean, Warnock and Ossoff, these would be really problematic left wing legislators. These are not moderates. You know, this isn't like a, a Susan Collins kind of a situation on the Democrat side. These are leftists who are running. So it's not even just a function of the of the balance of power, which, of course, is the primary issue. But you got guys like like John Ossoff. I mean, this guy is a he's a trust fund baby. The classic limousine lib who wants to push the, the more radical left policies of the Democrats onto the nation if he gets into the United States Senate. Play clip 12. I think that the GOP attacks at this point are garden variety, fear mongering, race baiting. Look, they've been lengthening my nose in their ads to remind everybody that I'm a Jew. They've been running racist attacks against Reverend Warnock. And what's emerging in Georgia is the new South. You've got the young Jewish son of an immigrant mentored by John Lewis running alongside a black preacher who holds Dr. King's pulpit at Ebenezer Church. And we're traveling the state right now. You see this bus behind me talking about health, jobs and justice. So the GOP can run their playbook, which is fear and division. We're talking about what we're going to do for working people at a moment of crisis here in Georgia. Yeah. Calling them racist and anti-Semitic. This is what you're going to get from uh, from Ossoff. And of course, you're going to hear similar stuff from from Warnock, too. Uh, Never mind the fact that Warnock is being entirely protected by the media establishment. I mean, they they will do anything to make sure that we don't know 
uh, that, that, that not enough Georgians know that this is a guy who said you can't serve the military and serve God at the same time, that this is an individual who is not in the political mainstream, Ossoff and Warnock, but they are the, the Democrats right now are full of a kind of a kind of hubris. They feel like they've got the momentum and they understand that we face a very, very different country for the next four years if the Democrats have a majority in the Senate, that that is going to be problematic. That is going to be a serious challenge for us going forward. So for all of Team Buck Georgia out there, and I know we've got a lot of listeners, we've got people all around the Savannah area I know who listen to the show, and we've got people in the suburbs of Atlanta, and we've got various stations out there in Georgia. Uh, you Please, your, your vote. I mean, this election, this could be a Senate election that comes down to hundreds of votes. It's 1% in the polls that I'm seeing right now, and it's probably going to be even tighter than that. Norm Coleman got his seat stolen from him by Al Franken by a margin of literally hundreds of votes. We have thousands of people that listen to this show in Georgia alone, and perhaps tens of thousands, and I would really like it if... All of you listening in the state of Georgia right now would please go vote and tell your conservative Republican friends, family, you know, Bob, the mail guy, Susie, the coffee shop owner, you know, whoever say you got to get out there and vote. you got to spread the word. Uh, if we if we go into the middle of January, if we go into a, a Biden inauguration with the Democrats picking off these two Senate seats, we are in for a rough ride, friends, and it's not too late. We can stop it. So let's do that. Thanks for listening to the Bus Sex and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcast, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Harsani time, everybody. Our friend David Harsani from National Review in the mix now with all the biggest, most important stories of the week, or at least the ones that he most wants to talk to us about. David, great to have you back. Always a pleasure. Thank you. So I, I, I had a laugh this week. Uh, we had uh, Steve Schmidt, who I am I am uh, not shy about criticizing for his absurd commentary on the show on a regular basis. Um, I, I do think maybe offers up. I don't know if he is the dumbest political commentator, but offers up some of the dumbest political commentary you could find anywhere and, and has been doing this for the amusement of Democrats for years. A former Republican GOP strategist or whatever. Uh, now it comes out that he and other people from the Lincoln Project are Democrats. I mean, they're formally joining the Democrat Party. I, I remember what I was saying that these people are called Democrats two years ago uh, or three years ago, you know, whatever, even before they had the Lincoln Project. And and uh, they were saying, oh, no, they're the real conservatives. Turns out not so much, David. No. And, and, and Steve Schmidt is especially noxious. Like. You know, the things he says are especially dis, uh, dishonest and, mis, you know, misleading and nasty. Um, but he's not a very bright guy. And uh, he's always I mean, once you start going after senators like uh, Collins in Maine or, or other moderate Republicans, you're no longer anti-Trump. You're just a Democrat, which was always my problem with the Lincoln Project. You want to you want to go out there and campaign for Democrats. That's fine. But if you want to be on CNN and other stations pretending you're a Republican who's just so hurt by the mean things that Donald Trump says, um, you're misleading the public, right? And it's a scam and a con. And that's, of course, what those guys are running over there. 
Um, so I, I don't really understand why he couldn't. <laughs> it's weird that he had to tell everyone he's going to be a Democrat when he could have just continued that con. I guess that because they had such little effect on the election, they're going to try something new. I don't know. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's such a joke. It seems to me like uh, there's going to be a whole lot of former conservative or whatever they call themselves, you know, GOP strategists at CNN and MSNBC who only have they, they, they've only got two options, become Democrats or no longer be on TV and pushing this nonsense. Because, I mean, if you're looking for overrepresentation of a set of, of political beliefs, the people who claim to be so, so much the real Republicans during the Trump presidency who are on TV all the time. You had Nicole Wallace from the uh, Bush administration, Steve Schmidt. Uh, I mean, I, I can't even think of all of them off the top of my head right now. But you had all these former you know, so-called former Republicans who I mean, oh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Rick Wilson. These people were so GOP. So what happens now? I mean, I get the con can't continue, can it? No, it's like. There's always going to be an industry of, of um, former Republicans who just can't take it. This is not something new. It's gone back. You know, it was happening during the Bush years as well. People who just simply could not, you know, where has the Republican Party gone? It's terrible. Four years from now, people are going to be saying, you know, at least Trump did X and Y. You know, this is even worse. It's, it's always the way. Um, these guys were especially terrible because they didn't only attack Trump. And I'm fine with going after politicians. They, they, they mocked conservatives, they mocked conservative beliefs, and but they do it under under uh, the title of a former cons- a Republican, you know, the real conservatives. And that's what just annoys me so much because it's no longer an ideological argument. It's just about personalities and these people are just on TV so that they can make uh, liberals feel good about themselves as they sort of demean conservatives. And it's it's also the, 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 the problem with that is that you have networks that are putting these folks up for that very reason. They don't want to have real debates. They want to have, how many conservatives are really on CNN, let's say? I mean, I don't really want to. Now, none, but now the answer is none. It doesn't exist anymore, but go ahead. I know that, I I don't want to insult, uh, you know, I know that we both know Essie Cup, right? I I think we both work with her at the same time, but she's, you know, she's out there ripping the Second Amendment, you know, uh, saying, you know, she's just, basically just a liberal who still calls herself, I guess, a conservative. And that's just misleading. I, I just think we deserve or viewers deserve a better debate or maybe we don't deserve it. I don't know. But that, you know, it's still dishonest. I feel like there's no debate allowed at these places anymore. In fact, I think there are very few places in the media in general where there's any effort to allow a real airing of ideas. And I think it's because a lot of it is driven by audiences. I mean, I will say that uh, it's true. It's very true on the left. It's even a little bit true on the right. You know, the, the, you'll have if there's an exchange of ideas that doesn't result in someone saying, you know, in someone effectively clearly trouncing and sort of belittling the other person. You have a lot of people who are just disinterested in that now. I mean, they, they don't even really want to hear the exchange. Not everybody, but that that's very common. And I think that's what the media ecosystems that exist right now have done. And it's a shame. And it's 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 much more pervasive on the left than it is on the right. But I do see it in both places. And and I feel like we understand the real crux of a lot of these arguments as as a, as the American people less than we otherwise would, because everyone's just kind of protecting their brand now. No one no one actually wants to get into it. I think that's right. And you see people threatening to cancel their New York Times headlines when, you know, someone writes I'm sorry, their subscriptions when someone writes a headline they don't like 
or covers a story they don't like. Um, and obviously, you know, I get a lot of mail about, you know, National Review has this writer or that writer. Like, it's hard for people to understand that you can have more than one opinion. Or when people attack a publication, they say, you know, the National Review says this or the National Review says that when it's a columnist. It happened at the Federalist as well, you know. It's hard for people to understand that, that you're going to have a lot of different opinions and, and debate, which I think is healthy. Um, so, yeah, I think you're right. It's a lot of, I just think a lot of audiences just no longer want to hear it anymore. And I hate to say, and I, this will sound biased, but conservatives probably are that way because they're so sick of these big institutions being so biased that they don't want to, in their view, they're like, we don't need this debate here when we constantly hear it elsewhere. So I get that part of it. But I agree. And I, I also think conservatives are so sick of the fake version of these debates that, I mean, it's 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 kind of like the West Wing effect, you know, from the TV show by Aaron Sorkin, the West Wing. It's like, oh, like. The Democrats have all these snappy comebacks and are just so wonderful and like good looking and smart. And the Republicans are always like, I just I just love Jesus and and I I, I hate women. And you know, it's like that's that's what's what you get on the West Wing as th- those are all Republicans. Right. They're just they're a bunch of Bible thumping, anti women, kind of maybe racist. And all the arguments kind of boil down to that. You're like, oh, OK, I, I, I guess that's the way it really is. Sometimes they see the light, right? And come over to the right side and they, they see it. Yeah, and they, they have some really some really sort of saccharine violin music in the background as the conservative, you know, they play the clarinets in the background as the conservative goes, Wow, you're right. I I never really thought of it that way, you know. They find their they find their heart and their humanity and vote with uh it's a funny thing. It's just a little off topic is when people tell you to stop being partisan, they just mean stop being Republican. It's never, you know, the other way that they mean it. Um, stop being a partisan and just embrace gun rights, you know, gun restrictions, or stop being a partisan and do this and that. Yeah. I mean, it's, again, it's, we, we, we hit this up quite often, but it's just, it's sort of an institutional problem now. And I'm not sure what can be done about it when, with these fake republic. like, no, you know, I used to work with Tom Nichols, a fine guy, I guess, you know, and all that, but he's never really been a conservative. You know, there's no, what views of his are actually conservative. I don't know. And yet he's on there pretending to be this, uh, you know, erstwhile Republican who who has you know seen the light and is fighting against evil with it in his own party, but he's never been a conservative, so uh, it's just dishonest. Uh, we're speaking to David Harsani of National Review, and and David, speaking of the lack of honesty in in public conversations, I gotta say this: so so Pete Buttigieg is now supposed to be the incoming Biden administration transportation secretary. And and <laughs> some of the articles, some of the stuff on this have on have honestly been hilarious al- already. Um, Pete, here's from NPR. Pete Buttigieg, president-elect Biden's pick for transportation secretary, said, quote, he has a personal love of transportation, recounting train trips on Amtrak while in college and said he proposed to his new husband, Chasen, in an airport terminal. Oh, well, and that, I mean, this this is a step away from I'm not a doctor, but I stayed at a Marriott Express last night or whatever, a Holiday Inn Express, whatever it is. And like this, is, the media is actually doing this. Pete Buttigieg liked trains in college, so he should be the transportation secretary. It's amazing when you compare it to like what happened with Betsy DeVos or, you know, any any anyone actually in the Trump administration. Pete, Pete actually, uh, Mayor Pete uh 
he's like a thermonuclear cliche generator, you know, he says stuff like, and I'm making this up, but it's probably pretty close, you know, like, uh, we don't build roads, the roads build us, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, he's perfect for, for the job where, where little is done and it doesn't really matter. So, I mean, I met Ray LaHood when he was Obama's uh, transporta transportation secretary, and he was one of the most ridiculous people I've ever met in person. And I, I wouldn't let him run anything either. So I think this is a pretty good spot for Pete. Yeah, and I, I guess you're going to see a lot more of this, though. And I remember when, say what you will about his foreign policy in action, but the CEO of ExxonMobil, which until recently was the largest and, and you know, wealthiest uh, corporation in the world. I mean, the, the most valuable, I should say, corporation in the world. Rex Tillerson had that job. And when they were going to make him secretary of state, they acted like Trump had picked some uh, some like inebriated fool off the beach somewhere that he thought was funny to make. I mean, it's just there's no. The, the, the media has so little in terms of standards and principles they apply now, you know, political journalism, if we want to be more specific about it, David, that you just feel like they they don't care anymore. They don't know. I mean, how is this possible? The double standards to be this blatant. Well, and they, well I don't know about that part, but I do know that it's funny when you think about how they would talk about Trump as this person who's completely unprepared for the job. But yet Obama, who literally I cannot tell you what he did other than run for president, essentially for about eight years before he became president. I, I don't even know what he did before then. I know he's a community organizer. I don't even know what that means. He never ran anything. But he's treated as someone who is like incredibly um, proficient at everything and knowledgeable and, and ready to run a giant or biggest organization in the world, essentially, where where Donald Trump actually has ran pretty big businesses, et cetera. But so there's always going to be this double standard. Um, and P Mayor Peach is part, part of it. And you I, I got to ask you, because I, I didn't get a chance to talk to you about this sooner. Um, but, uh, you know, bet I mean, not Betsy DeVos, uh the wife of Jill Biden. Sorry, I was blanking on her name for a second. Jill Biden, where do you come down on the Dr. the Dr. Biden controversy? Well, I've noted on numerous occasions that the only people I call doctor are people who can prescribe me morphine and Dr. J. Those are the two. I, I've been persuaded to maybe do, I'm not Dr. Dr. J. I've been persuaded to maybe call Dr. Dre a doctor, but um, Kyle Smith, who writes at the National Review, wrote a scathing column and read her dissertation, which is just complete garbage. Um, I would say that I don't call people doctors who aren't medical doctors. I find it pretentious. I think it grates against the egalitarianism of American life for someone to demand that you call them by their credentials. And uh, I think it's kind of laughable considering what she's a doctor. And no offense to others who have... Uh, been lucky enough to be able to go to school long enough to get that degree. David Harsani of National Review. Check out his latest at nationalreview.com. David, always a pleasure. Thank you. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I also had a personal love of transportation ever since childhood. More than once as a college student, I would convince a friend to travel nearly a thousand miles back to Indiana with me on Amtrak. Though I know that in this administration, I will at best aspire to be the second biggest uh, train enthusiast around. I spent a spring break in graduate school aboard a cargo ship studying there. Travel in my mind is synonymous with growth, with adventure, even love, so much so that I proposed to my husband Chaston in an airport terminal. 
What, what does that have to do with being transportation secretary exactly? It doesn't matter. I mean, it matters, but the media is, oh, it's amazing. It's great. You know, modern, modern, uh, modern romance in an air, airport, uh, airport, whatever, lounge or wherever he proposed, uh, proposed to his husband. You know, they're, they're, oh, they all love the story. They love the whole thing. It's going to be quite an amazing feat to watch the transformation of the national media from being viciously, psychotically opposed to the current administration to transforming and becoming uh, an administration pom-pom squad, right? They're going to love, the national media is going to love everything. They're going to, you know, two, four, six, eight, who do we appreciate? Biden! It's going to be, it's going to be tough to sit through. It's going to be tough to deal with, but that's what, the good news is you can come here, at least I'll tell you the truth about old man Joe. And what a joke, what a an unbelievable farce this whole thing is. This guy is going to be president. But I guess the good news is that you, too, can be like a, a D minus student with with rock bottom credentials in, in every aspect of your of your formative years. Uh, and you, too, can be president of the United States. I don't know. You know, anyone anyone can be president. All right. We get that from Joe Biden. Um, and, and the media is going to find ways to try to convince you that this is just great that it's fantastic and uh, they're going to be straight up activists they're going to be effectively it, it will be as though they are receiving paychecks from the white house directly kelly mckinney the outgoing white house press secretary knows this play nine I asked reporter after reporter after reporter along the campaign trail, why aren't you covering this? I said, you have a laptop. You now have a firsthand witness in Tony Bobolinsky, literally the business partner of Hunter Biden. And you have a campaign in Joe Biden who will not deny the facts of this case. Remarkably, if they're not true, all Joe Biden has to do is come out and say, this is not true, this is false, this is defamatory, as President Trump did with Russiagate, which was a hoax. None of, that, none of that happened. They did not deny it, and the press didn't cover it. It was the biggest act of journalistic malpractice in four years since the Russia hoax that they propelled in 2016. Journalism has to get to a higher standing place in this country. The American people deserve better. They don't deserve censorship and the reporters of today need to take a look in the mirror because they don't deserve to call themselves reporters at this point they are in fact activists sounds like something i'd say here on this show in fact i have said they're not they're not journalists they're activists i think about a million times and it's true but it's also not going to change doesn't mean we shouldn't point it out doesn't mean we shouldn't uh try to hold them to account but remember it's not viewed as a shortcoming among journalists to be an activist you'll be promoted. You'll become more famous. You become richer. These are all good things for people, right? That's, that's the way they view it. So the incentives are all aligned for the continuation, the perpetuation of this insanity. Just understand that. Thanks for listening to the Bus Sex and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're still battling COVID and... There are still people out there who want to try to blame President Trump for all of it. They view this somehow as all Trump's fault. Somehow the COVID pandemic has shown us the full extent of Trump derangement syndrome. Not only is Trump to blame for it, he, he should even be criminally prosecuted for it. 
It doesn't seem to make any sense to a normal person, does it? But over at NBC News, you can get on TV if you're willing to say that the president is effectively a mass murderer responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths. And I'm not exaggerating. This is aired on on national TV news programs. Play three. I mean, the two worst presidents of the last hundred years are the last two Republican presidents, the current one, Donald Trump and George W. Bush, which speaks volumes about the modern Republican Party. Uh, And also, when you compare Trump and Bush, Bush killed hundreds of thousands of people abroad, you know, brown and black people in faraway countries that we don't care about. Donald Trump killed hundreds of thousands of people or presided over the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people, preventable deaths, here at home in the United States of America. And that, for me, you know, you talk about morally abominable. It's sociopathic. Uh, You mentioned earlier in the show the four words that will be the epitaph is we want more infections, we want more infected. Uh, What about who cares in those emails? That jumped out at me. This guy Paul Alexander writes, if we have more cases, more people infected, more, more positive tests, who cares? And you take who cares, you add it to Donald Trump's it is what it is. You add it to Jared Kushner's that's their problem when people in New York are dying. This is sociopathic. This is not just morally abominable. And I think people should be held to account. I think they should be prosecuted. The people behind these preventable deaths should be prosecuted when they leave office on January 20th. Prosecuted for what? What's the crime exactly? An aerosolized respiratory virus that can kill people, kills less than 1% of the people who get it, but it can kill people. And, and you're going to prosecute people for what exactly? And, and how do we factor into this, this moronic rant? I mean, you just need to hear that this was on NBC. Okay, this is NBC News. Maybe it was MSNBC, but NBC owns MSNBC. It's all the same thing. This is a national cable news channel. And you say, well, why would anyone say anything that insane? I mean, you you just think this through. Is Donald Trump responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths that have occurred in Europe? Is is Donald Trump responsible for all the deaths from covid-19 in China, in South America and countries like Argentina and Brazil, which have had a very tough time with covid-19 in in Mexico? I I just want to know what what really is the moral guideline that's in place here. Can, can we establish that? Can we understand where all this really is? Doesn't seem, doesn't seem like it. Doesn't seem like they're willing to let us know. They just want to use this as a, as a weapon to attack Donald Trump, and that is what they continue to do. Um, and there are some on the, on the, on the right who have really sort of given into this, and, and I think they've realized that that it's just so much easier. It's so much uh, so much more palatable to go along with this consensus that, oh, we know what the right thing is to do. It's just those big, bad, mean Republicans won't do it. Really? So we know the right thing to do, but we won't we we won't uh, do it because of Trump. That's what they really think. That's what they really believe. I mean, even Chris Christie, it seems convinced that he took his mask off for a second and that's when he got sick. He has absolutely no idea how or when he got sick. None whatsoever. I can assure you of that. He has no idea. This is a submicroscopic virus that that is transmitted freely in the air. I just read a study yesterday that says that people in a narrow hallway might be able to be 
infected by aerosolized particles up to 16 feet behind the person. That was on the Daily Mail. Based on a study that was just released, a peer-reviewed scientific study. 16 feet, all that. Six feet! You know that Tom Cruise went on that crazy rant. We don't play it for you here. Screaming at everybody on his movie set. Because two people were close to each other at a computer. Treating, you know, dehumanizing people. Screaming at them. You'll be fired. No paycheck for you. You're out of here. A little psycho. That guy's a nut job. Uh, but... Chris Christie is, is also in this whole, oh, you know, it's, it's my fault. Cause he doesn't know. He doesn't know if when he took off his mask is when he got infected. There's no way for him to know. But he, he wants to be part of this newer, less crazy Republican moment here. That, that's what some of these, you know, the, the Rubio, Christie, Romney, GOP, they're trying to bring this thing back. And I don't think it's going to happen, but I can see what they're doing. Play clip eight. This message isn't for everyone. It's for all those people who refuse to wear a mask. You know, lying in isolation in ICU for seven days, I thought about how wrong I was to remove my mask at the White House. Today, I think about how wrong it is to let mask wearing divide us, especially as we now know you're twice as likely to get COVID-19 if you don't wear a mask. Because if you don't do the right thing, we could all end up on the wrong side of history. Please wear a mask. We're wearing masks, jackass. We're wearing masks. We've been wearing them for months. You have to wear them in most places in this country where there is dense population. You have no choice. Wearing them all the time. California's wearing them. New York's wearing them. Cases are skyrocketing. So what, what exactly is the message here? Wear masks more? We're already doing it. Double up on the mask? Where's your N95 mask? Put on a face shield, too. And maybe a kerchief around the N95 and maybe a medical, you know, cotton mask on top of all that. I mean, at, at what point do they realize something is up here and it's not our lack of compliance? That is not what is driving these up. There's, that, that is a completely unreasonable, uh, just it, it's a nonsensical view of this. But they don't want to admit that maybe what they've been telling us is just not true. If masking works to reduce the spread of COVID-19 by 5% or 10%, it's, it's, it's just extending. I mean, you remember, reducing the spread is just a duration issue. So what are really the chances that they're saving anyone from getting infected would get infected anyway? You're reducing it 5 or 10% a month, let's say. Is that, and is that worth all this irritation, all the stuff that we're going through right now? The lack of freedom. It's all about compliance. Do what you're told. Chris Christie's like, I took my mask off at the White House. He doesn't know. He could have gotten infected a thousand different ways that day. He has no idea. But now he gets now he gets to pat on the head from the New York Times. Now he gets to be treated like he's one of the good people. You know, and now they want you to know, don't worry, we won't punish you for your lack of mask wearing. We, we, we won't actually throw you in prison because we can't actually scientifically prove this is a good idea, but we insist that it is. This is Kamala telling you that. Play 17. He has said a 100-day mask mandate. Other than that, what specifically will this administration do to turn this pandemic around? Yeah. And the 100 days of the mask, he's urging. Like, there's no punishment. They don't have to. But he is saying, as a leader, please, everybody, 
work with me here for the first hundred days let's everybody just wear a mask and see and see the outcomes there because of course the scientists and the public health officials tell us there'll be really great outcomes if everyone does wear a mask when they're in public it is about getting through the pandemic around making sure that everyone has access to the vaccine and that they take it. And how do you go about doing that when you know there's so much mistrust, especially in the community of color? That means about listening to the people. It means about remembering history and why people feel the way they do. And then also reminding folks this vaccine is just about one thing and one thing only saving lives. Yeah, the vaccine is about saving lives. You'll, you'll notice that our, our, our rejection of science, those of us who have problems with the mask mandates, a, a lot of us, at least, who, who feel that way, don't have a problem with the vaccine. I think the vaccine is based on solid data. I think the vaccine should be uh, should be something that people choose to take. And I think that there are going to be people we are already seen a little bit of this. There's going to be adverse reactions. There is a risk. There is always a risk to a vaccine. There's no question about that. No matter what the vaccine is, there's always some risk to it. I think that on the whole, most of them are are very, you know, not necessarily a flu vaccine for a lot of people, but you know, the MMR vaccines. And I, I think that uh, this has been an enormous benefit to public health and has made us all live longer, happier lives. So I, I'm very pro vaccine in general, and I'm very pro this vaccine. And I think it will save a lot of lives. It will help a lot of people. But notice that. So, so it's not just that there's some Luddite anti-progress, anti-science mentality that's pushing this. It's someone explain to me why we have these rules in place. And when the cases are low, it's, oh, look, we know how to handle this. The rules are so helpful. And then when the cases are high with the same rules in place, they go, well, you're just not obeying enough. No, that's not. I'm here in New York City and, and they have had uh, that everyone you see outside, even not even just indoors, of course, but everyone you see outside now has a mask on. You know, 90, 95 percent. If this was really effective at stopping transmission in public places uh, and you have 90 percent compliance, wouldn't wouldn't our caseload just fall off of a cliff because of this? Wouldn't it be just a tiny, tiny number of people getting sick? No, but that's not what is happening. And they won't even think about why that is. Maybe it's because, yeah, sure, you're, you're let's say you're in a virus cloud in a room with someone and you're wearing that mask. You're being really good. But, you know, you, you touch something and then you and then you touch your nose or you touch something or then you touch your mouth. Guess what? You're still getting and people say, oh, well, then just don't do those things. Do you know how many times you touch your face every every 15 minutes or so? It's an astonishingly high number and everyone does it. Um, but Kamala also, when she's asked about people like Gavin Newsom, who are big proponents of all these rules, and then they don't themselves follow the rules. If it were really about saving lives, w- wouldn't they be more about compliance? I mean, I'll, I'll tell you this, for example, um, I'm very strict with myself and with others about firearm safety, uh, having seen and been on the range a few times when people have had you know, a, a firearm safety lapse and how Life-threatening that can be, you know, someone who, oh, it jammed. Oh, they turn around and they, they point the gun at somebody thinking, oh, no, it's jammed. You know, I mean, that, that's, do you see that happen once or twice? And you realize firearm safety. So I practice what I preach. Right? I, I say that everybody that I'm with and myself, we have to be held to a, a, a zero mistake standard when it comes to 
All guns are always loaded. Keep your finger off the trigger until you've made an affirmative decision to, sh- to shoot. Know what your target is. Know what is, what is around it. Know what is behind it. Right? I mean, th- these are things that you, you train yourself to think about because you're in a zero mistakes a- and you live by them and you expect others to live by them. Right? Yet, and that's because lives are at stake. A mistake on the firearms range can cost someone their life. If lives are at stake with COVID-19 and the people pushing these policies really believe that, why do they keep violating the very policies that they claim are saving lives? Why is that? Anyone, anyone have any ideas on that one? Maybe it's because they don't really believe the things that they're saying. Here's Kamala Harris when asked about Gavin Newsom, who clearly violates the guidelines he enforces at catastrophic costs on everybody else, play 18. Leaders on both sides, when it comes to the pandemic, they will put down strict guidelines. Yeah. And even your colleague in California, the strict guideline, but yet they don't follow through. What kind of message does that send to the American public? I think we all have to understand that right now, this is a moment for everyone to sacrifice and um, if we're going to get through this together as a country then we all have to do it yeah that's not an answer you know why it's not an answer you know why she won't answer because there is no good answer other than they don't really believe the things that they're saying they expect you to comply they have no interest in complying themselves why is that you can certainly come up with it yourself certainly understandable why they feel that way we all know the hypocrisy is very clear it's very obvious and yet they tell you shut up anyway do what you're told wear that mask (sighs) it's not going to stop until we make it stop you're in the freedom hut this is the buck sexton show podcast Well, you know, I do think that we need new leadership in the Democratic Party. I think one of the things that I have struggled with, I think that a lot of people struggle with, is the internal dynamics of the House has made it such that there's very little option for succession, if you will. You know, and I think that one could just... I I think it's easy for someone to say, oh, well, you know, why don't you run? But the house is extraordinarily complex and I'm not ready. (laughs) It can't be me. I know that I couldn't do that job. And so even conservative um, members of the party who think Nancy Pelosi is far too liberal for them don't necessarily have any viable alternatives, which is why whenever there's a challenge, it kind of collapses. Um, And that is, I think, the result of just many years of power being concentrated in leadership with a lack of, you know, real grooming of a next generation of leadership. Wow. What I was I I I had to play what she said is uh Kind of true. <laughs> so, so yeah, this is what I was You listen to AOC, you go, oh, uh, okay, yeah, actually. Nancy Pelosi has made sure that there are no successors. Nancy Pelosi reminds me a lot of actually uh, of people in, in media, uh, in the news media in particular, who want to pretend that they're the, they want to pretend they're the only one who can do a job that a lot of other people can do, but they want to make sure there's nobody else right behind them that could take over the platform. So there are certain people that they'll allow to do things, but... 
There are others that they want to sort of keep away because then everyone realize, oh, this person's younger, better, and a whole lot cheaper at this job. <laughs> and uh, Nancy Pelosi, it is time for her to go. She's not going. She's not going. Going to be Speaker of the House again. It's pretty remarkable when you think about it. And there really is. I mean, who among the Democrats could take over that job? And forget about whether you like I'm just saying, who, who would even be able to, at least AOC is self-aware enough to know she has nowhere near the institutional knowledge to be effective in that role. And it's it's clear that there there is no effort to bring up uh, other people within the Democrat. You know, Pelosi, she rules that thing with an iron fist and, a, and an Hermes scarf. And that's how she does it. Are they going to get this deal done where they get COVID relief to people, though? I, I'm... You know, I'm just going to say it. If Republicans can't get this thing done, I worry about their fortunes in Georgia and there need to be direct payments. People need cash on the barrel right now. People need money who have lost their jobs because of the pandemic. They need help. The GOP has has got to step up here and make sure that's a part of this. I'm increasingly seeing this. If we lose Georgia, it, it looks like it's going to be because we deserve to lose Georgia because we're not doing the things we need to do to win these Senate seats. And, you know, there's been a lot of distraction right now and not enough of the focus that's necessary to get it done there. And I'm I just, I'm, I'm pleading with all of Team Buck Georgia to get out there and do everything they can for those two Senate seats. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Like soft butter on warm toast. Time to spread some freedom coast to coast. It's time for Roll Call. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton or Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com if you want to send us an email and also, uh, please do check out BuckSexton.com. We got stories going up there, and it is good times, good times all around. Producer Mark, do you realize it is almost Friday? I'm very excited for Friday. Do you realize that on Friday you actually go on vacation for quite a while? Yes, I will not see you for 15 days. Well, I guess I haven't seen you since March, technically, but you know what I mean. I will not speak to you for 15 days. Um. That's it's going to be very sad for you. Is Mrs. Mark going to be able to? Uh, she going to be able to take care of you? I think uh, we'll be okay. She is also on vacation, so this will be the most time we've spent together in a long time. Oh, that's very nice. Do you guys have anything fun? Have anything fun going on? No. We're going to watch a lot of movies, cook some stuff. You know, just enjoy as much as we can being together while doing absolutely nothing and not actually going anywhere. What is the top of the Producer Mark movie list? Well, I actually said to my wife yesterday that maybe maybe on Christmas, maybe around the time, there's two holiday movies I would like to watch this year. Elf and Home Alone. I just have the itch to watch those two classics. Snow year. Princess and I watched Home Alone last weekend, which I've seen a million times, but of it's course. still great. You've seen them both a million times, but they're still amazing in classics. So you, yeah, so you've seen Elf many times. Of course. There, there may be a, um, there may be a, a best, um, uh, a, 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 I, I think that you could argue that those are two of the top five. 
Oh yeah. You know, I think that that's possible. I think Elf might be one of the top Christmas movies of all time. Like it's in the running for number one, is what I'm saying. Oh, that's that's bold. Now, granted, that's bold. I'm not a big Christmas movie aficionado. Just I don't celebrate the holiday, but. I know a lot of other people who do who really love Elf, and I, I mean, I know Did you, you guys do, didn't. Do, you do. guys didn't do that thing. Um, you didn't do that thing uh, where you like did the tree anyway, just for like fun's sake. Did oh you? no, no. Yeah. Uh, my wife's parents would never allow that, and I think my grandmother would roll over in a grave if I ever put a tree up in my house. There, okay, there yeah, we go. So no, no trees for producer no trees. Mark. Yeah. You got the Hanukkah, Hanukkah, Hanukkah. Sorry, yeah. Hanukkah candles up. Did, did you see the video of Smokey Robinson? No, what happened? <laughs> You've got to watch it. Go, uh, just search Smokey Robinson on Twitter. Uh, maybe we can get the clip for you tomorrow. But he was doing a cameo. Do you know what those are? Yeah. Uh, so he's doing a cameo and he is wishing somebody a happy Hanukkah. That's what the person wrote. So he goes, and I would like to wish you a happy Chinooka. I don't know what that is but happy Chinooka. <laughs> it is one of the funniest videos I've ever seen. You have I to think, watch it yourself. I just want to be very clear. I think T. Buck all wishes you a happy Chinooka, as do I. Well, thank you. Mark, yeah, and so, I have no yeah. idea what that is, but thank you. Um, and I, I remember, uh, you know, I got one of my... So I, I went to bar mitzvahs growing up because I grew up here in New York City. Um, and, and my first girlfriend was Jewish. Or at least she was half Jewish, but I think she was raised Jewish. And uh, I, I, so I went to bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs. But I also remember there was a real breakout moment where Adam Sandler had the Hanukkah song. Oh. And it like really created a fest. There was a festive song about Hanukkah all of a sudden. Yeah, I mean, there, there are other songs, but that's the most popular Hanukkah song by far. Yeah, that, that's what yeah. I mean. That, I think that is still what people think. If you ask somebody who's not particularly religious, uh, who's Jewish, if you ask them what is the ultimate Hanukkah song, I feel like they may say, well, of course, it's the Adam Sandler Hanukkah yeah, of song. of course. Nobody says dreidel, dreidel, dreidel anymore. It's all about Adam Sandler. Yeah, Adam Sandler, man. That guy That guy had quite a run. Doesn't really do... I mean, oh, no, he did that uh, Uncut Gems movie, which basically gave me, like, heart palpitations, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was a great movie, even though you didn't like it. Yeah. I but his he... uh, stuff in the 90s, early 2000s, amazing. I think my brothers and I probably watch Happy Gilmore together uh, at least a dozen times. So yeah, that's fair. The price is wrong. Um, so yeah. Anyway, we got all we got all the oh good good things all around. And folks, uh, just so you kind of have some sense of where we're heading here, I'm going to be with you Monday, Tuesday next week. The Godfather Michael Palco will be taking over Wednesday, which is that Christmas Eve day. That is the 23rd of December. Okay, no, so that's the 23rd. So then, so the 23rd and. Uh, and, and then, then, and then, and then he we'll will be with you the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of the week after Christmas. And That's then right. we are off. Yeah. So we're, so we're on the holidays. We'll have best of shows. If you want to listen to something, we'll have best of shows posted. So it'll be uh, really good content that you might not have, might not have uh, remembered or heard or anything like that. So, uh, you could definitely check those out and, uh, we're planning other, a lot of other fun things. So I'll be with you guys Monday and Tuesday of next week. And then the Godfather takes over next Wednesday. Producer Mark will be gone. The following week, I turn 39. It's my birthday week. I will be off that week. Godfather will be in Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And then we'll have a best of show Thursday, Friday for New Year's Eve. So, and the Godfather is uh, great. And he's going to do a very solid job, as he always does, uh, taking over the Freedom Hut. So that's, that's, and then January 3rd, we come back and it's all systems well, go. You can come back January 3rd. I'll be in on the 4th. Oh, the, the 4th, right. The 3rd would be Sunday, yes. which would be. That would be a bit of a surprise. I don't, I don't think the affiliates would air the show. 
Um, well, there would be no way for them to because yeah. we're not on on Sundays. So exactly. that would be kind of a strange deal. So I just want everyone to know that that's the plan. So I'll be with you pretty uh, for at least a couple of days next week here. But this is really the only time of the year that I that I take any vacation. You know, that's the only time of the year when I actually take vacation. So I'm uh, and then producer Mark and I are going to be hanging out all the time. So that's how it's going to go. Yeah, basically uh, January 4th on uh, we'll be here. There you go, because we don't really, we don't we don't like vac- we don't like other vacations. Oh, I like so vacation, much. but uh, the pandemic has make a, made us not be able to take much. Yeah, that's true too. Can't really do very much. All righty, let's get into the roll call. Jason kicks us off here. Buck, I'm a nurse on a COVID only unit where I've been since the start. Like uh, like another listener commented, we haven't been testing for flu. In normal times, anyone who comes in contact with a provider and has respiratory symptoms is tested for flu. But that was largely replaced by COVID tests. I assume this was mostly due to the very limited supply of test kits. The same test kit is used for both COVID and flu. I have had one patient that was both COVID and flu positive, but for several months, patients were only tested for flu if it was important to the differential diagnosis and treatment plan. Numbers for flu might start to tick up going forward starting a few weeks ago. COVID testing is now often part of a panel using one test kit that includes COVID, flu, and other common respiratory viruses. Jason, thank you so much for the uh, the uh, expert analysis here on this. And and first, so it is possible to have COVID and flu simultaneously. So that's interesting because I had asked about that, or at least to be positive for both COVID and flu. And I, I'm looking at the data, and the data is saying right now they're basically... I mean, almost no flu deaths so far in the United States in this country, which is just not possible. So something is going on. I, I'm not I'm not being conspiratorial. I'm just saying something is going on and we should figure out what that is. Um, and, you know, what ha- if someone dies from respiratory symptoms, let's say someone's positive for flu and covid and they die because of the respiratory symptoms that are very similar for both of those. What do what did they die from? I mean, I, I just I think that we should understand that we have we're developing rules and and uh, and looking into this. Right. So, uh, you know, something's going on here. Something's happening that we're not being told or we haven't figured out yet. Um, and uh, and the test, the way that all these tests go on, I want to know, I mean, if PCR tests really are picking up old or or um, effectively virus that's not at a clinically infectious or at a level of clinical infection, that means we're getting a lot of false positives around the country, too. Now, I know there's high hospitalizations and deaths, too. I'm not saying that, that, that the testing is driving this whole moment of fear. But are we doing a lot of testing that is finding COVID that's not actually there? I, I think we should know that. I think that's important. John writes, hello, Team Buck. I got a question for you regarding the vaccine and how it's going to play out. I'm currently a student in university here in New York, and I'm wondering if they're going to try to force you to have the vaccine to return to campus. What do you think is going to happen as the vaccine becomes more widely distributed? What do you think the process will look like for the average person to get vaccinated? Thank you for the shows. I enjoy and appreciate the radio and TV show every day. I wish you and everyone a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Um, John, uh, yeah, I, look, I'll say this. Um, I think that it's going to I think it is going to be required for, for people to get the vaccine to go back to certain schools and university settings. I think they're going to say you have to, because they already do that for other, uh, for other uh, situations. You know, I think you have to get the measles vaccine before you go to school in some places. I'd have to check what the different rules and regulations are. 
But um, yes, so that's going to be a part of this. And I think that uh, the, for the average person to get vaccinated, you're probably going to have online sign up for different providers in your area. And you're going to have a very specific time because they have to thaw the vaccine from the minus 90 Celsius temperature that it's at. You got to thaw the vaccine and then uh, they have to give it to you at a very specific, you know, in a very specific order. Um, I think that if you're basically a low risk, healthy person, you'll be able to get this vaccine by signing up online for an appointment at a provider near you probably in May or June. That's my that's my best estimate from everything that I've read. That's what it sounds like, which means that we're making it through this entire you're going to go through this entire respiratory, uh, you know, respiratory illness season at risk of contracting COVID. Just uh, if you have not already had it, that's that's what we are actually facing here. Um, so, yeah, that's where that's where this is. And uh, I'm so glad you, you enjoy the radio show and you watch the uh, TV show on the first. Uh, you can always download the first TV app and watch my show there. I'm, I, I lead into Bill O'Reilly. We got uh, Jesse Kelly, Dana Lash, great people at the first. Scott, Buck, today around 4.30 p.m. on KYKN in Salem, Oregon, I heard you close out just prior to a commercial with a statement. We're not going to go back to sitting around listening to Milton Friedman. It would be my opinion listening to Milton Friedman is exactly what we should be doing. It hurt me to use his name as some byword. I wish he was here to defend capitalism. No one else is. Love your love your show, but respect the Milton. Scott, I, I, I grew up reading Milton and listening to Milton. I, I'm not saying... That any, I'm not saying that Milton Friedman doesn't have doesn't have tremendous value, and and I, I was I was Scott mea culpa. I was flippant about it. I was flippant about it. And I shouldn't have been. So let me go back and 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 say more of what I was trying to say, or more of what I meant to say, and not make a flippant comment about about Milton Friedman. It, it's just that we need to deal with the political fights and the consequences of decisions with the world as it, as it is presented to us now. And I think that there is this conservatism, uh, especially in the early 2000s, sort of had this had this nostalgia for uh, for Reaganism. And yes, the principles and the ideas of Reaganism can carry through. But we have to understand that we are in a period of different challenges and and deal with the world as it is today, not harken back to the conservatism of of, you know, yesteryear, the conservatism of a different era and expect that to somehow be the answer to all of our problems today. I, I hope that's a better, um, better example. But Scott, I, I, I agree with you. I shouldn't have said, you know, Milton Friedman. I should have, you know, said like uh, the Weekly Standard or something, you know, it's just some conservative publication instead of an individual that does not really have all that much value in the current context. Well, the Weekly Standard shut down, so <laughs> that clearly doesn't have much value. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Finishing off roll call here on this uh, snowy Thursday. Well, I guess it's not snowing anymore, but there's a lot of snow on the ground here in New York. Joe, I love your show. Well, Joe, the show loves you. Been a fan since I first heard you when you filled in for Rush. I am OSS and a big fan of the Shields High podcast. I listen to other historical podcasts, but they tend to be extremely long. You cover it so well and do it in a session I can sit through in one setting. Well, Joe, thank you so much. And and yes, I I plan we're doing we already have some tape. We're going to be doing more. So Shields High will be more of a thing in the new year. 
And uh, we also are going to be putting some history podcasts up on YouTube. So you can go subscribe, youtube.com slash Buck Sexton. Uh, we're putting uh, YouTube stuff up there. If some of you have been asking, what are we doing on YouTube? It, it, right now, there's so many restrictions on political commentary that as we've tried to build a YouTube channel of our wonderful Team Buck audience, it's been very challenging because we keep getting um, throttled and demonetized. So they won't show our videos to anybody and they won't let us make any money off the videos that people are seeing. And we're, we're working through that now on YouTube to figure out, OK, well, what, what, what can we do here? I'm also on Rumble and we're putting stuff up on Rumble. But, you know, I want to use as many platforms as possible. My goal is to have my content reach as many conservatives and just as many people. I mean, I want I want to convert libs if I can. I want my content because I believe in it. I believe in what I do and what I say to reach as many people as possible. So we, we've had some trouble with YouTube, as many others have as well, because, well, it's engaged in conservative censorship. So that's why people are like, well, you have this big audience at radio. Why do you have a huge you know, a YouTube channel? Because they won't let us build a YouTube channel. That's that's big. We keep getting shut down. Dan writes, Uncle Buck, the election sham has splintered the right into an extreme faction the same way the squad and, and the Bernie bros have. Last week, Rush even mentioned secession, which went viral. Extremes are moving in opposite directions and taking greater control of the narrative. I have no idea where this road leads, but one thing is for certain. I no longer recognize this country as the one I grew up in, and I'm not an old geezer. We're around the same age. Where do you see this country in 10, 20, 30 years and beyond? P.S. Producer Mark, what are your thoughts on Stephen A. Cohen taking over the Mets? Uh, Producer Mark, I'll let you go first on the Mets. Uh, just to make this quick, other than meeting my wife, getting married, job stuff, all that, best thing to happen in my, in my life in 10 years. Well, there you go. There you go. I think I think producer Mark has answered your question. Sums it up well, right? Yeah, I think that I think that covers it. And as for where I think the country's going in 10, 20 years, uh, Dan, my I am I'm a happy warrior and a cautious optimist. And we're, we're, we keep fighting through and we're still in the greatest country in the history of the world. And it's worth fighting for every day. And even when we lose battles, we did the right thing by fighting for our principles. And that's what we'll continue to do. And there's remember, there's 70, 73 million of us that voted for Donald Trump in this election. OK, we're not alone, friends. We're not alone. I know right now there's a lot of frustration, but we will band together and we'll try to make this continue to be the best country uh, in the history of the world, which is what we've got. It's pretty remarkable to think about it. There's a lot even in this very tough time. There's a lot to be thankful for in life. And that's why I say, you know, after you listen to this show, just kick back, relax, take a breather, read a good history book. Hang out with the dog if you got one. Shields high.